Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now I'll turn over, if you will, to chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Now, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. 
So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as they had been told. Amen. You may be seated. Father, we are so grateful So unworthy, Father, but so, so very thankful you have given us this account of the incarnation, of the very promise, the conception, the delivery, and the glory of our Savior. Father, I I pray and ask, Lord, as we examine your word, your eternal truth, O Lord, that it would refresh us, it would stir us, it would awaken us, Lord, with a, a, a new understanding and a new, seeing a new facet of, O Lord, your, your sovereignty, your, your goodness to us, your faithfulness to us, the exactness of your promises Father, that we may know you, that we may experience this eternal life that you have given us through your beloved Son. Father, we we cannot know this in our own wisdom, and our own human reasoning, so we ask desperately for your Holy Spirit to, to open our hearts, to enlarge our hearts, to open our minds, to give us understanding that only comes from on high. Lord, may your spirit empower the words of this messenger to the glory of your name and for our good. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Now just to silence any potential fears, I'm only going to focus on Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, even though we do have until 1.30 today. But in looking at these different sections, these different pericopes of, of Luke, it's, it's amazing, this narrative, how, how such a glorious gift it is to us that the, this Gentile physician would take such care that you, you, can, you can almost hear the excitement in his words as he writes about the testimony of the promised Savior, the promised Redeemer, as he, as he relates this to his dear friend Theophilus. Such a, a simple, yet such a very profound account that it's very likely most of us, if not everyone among us, has heard this story throughout our life. But can we ever exhaust its depth and its, its meaning to us? And for any believer in Christ, and, and this includes pastors, there is a great danger in reading a familiar passage of Scripture, especially one we may be overly familiar with, 
that in our familiarity we may hinder our careful attention in examining it. We may dull our excitement and awe of what may be disclosed in this great deep profundity. Or we may even quench its impact on our lives and our communion with Christ. And in this account of what we call the Christmas story, one where Luke speaks forth with, with such straightforward, unembellished words to us, if we're not careful, we may miss out on hearing and seeing this, this meticulous, predetermined work of a sovereign and providential God. This work of grace that was exercised through the world systems at that time and that carries forth its impact and power to today. And if we don't approach this humbly and seeking the Spirit's help, we may miss out on opportunities to glimpse into the very aspects of God's character, of his heart, of how mercifully and bountifully he deals with sinful humanity. And without our contemplation, we may dangerously miss out on the glorious reality found in the outcome of what is rightly called by Paul the fullness of times, when the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, would enter into a finite and fallen world as a baby, in order to save people from their sins. Where the gracious giver has become the perfect gift. So we're going to look at this section in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, under three headings, three sections. First three verses, I've, I've outlined or considered them to be God's orchestration of Christ's birth. In the second section of verses 4 to 5, the providential locus of Christ's birth. And then the third part, verses 6 and 7, the humility and redemption in Christ's birth. So in our first section, the first three verses, the orientation or the orchestration of Christ's birth. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Luke is, is giving us, in, in our time, a very important look in both, to both the historical events that took place in those days but also the, the timing, the, the synchronization, what I've called the orchestration, the harmony of these predetermined events to perfect execution of this glorious plan of redemption. And it's as if Luke is using a very large, wide-angle lens at this point and seeing the broader picture that covers this entire empire of Rome. And what we find from the phrase... Now, in those days, this, this particular time that refers back, actually, to, to chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias. That in those days, Herod was acting as a, a ruler in, as, and as a Roman king over the particular province of Judea. 
But Luke now takes us to an even higher level of authority. It's the highest in the Roman Empire, all the way up to Caesar Augustus himself, who issues this very decree to the entire empire. Now, Caesar Augustus is not a name. It's, it's a title, and it means emperor honored or emperor revered one. His actual name was Gaius Octavius, and he was the adopted grandnephew of Julius Caesar. He was the most powerful and the most shrewd ruler in all of the history of the Roman Empire. He lived in great luxury and prominence in Rome and had great wealth. He is the one who established the very Praetorian Guard And he decisively and mightily conquered the entire empire. He was responsible for restoring unity and an orderly government within the empire. And he was the one that ushered in the Pax Romana era, which is the peace of Rome. And they experienced a prosperity that lasted over 200 years. And it was Caesar Augustus who was key in the development of all the public works and the very transportation infrastructure that was later utilized by the disciples and Paul in the spread of the gospel. He died in AD 14 during the life of Christ, and his stepson Tiberius Caesar took over as emperor during the ministry of Christ. And yet in all of this, all of these magnificent accomplishments of enjoying his great wealth, his prominence, his power, and establishing all of this infrastructure, it was all used for God's redemptive purposes. And now this this decree that Caesar Augustus issued was for a census to be taken of all the inhabitants of the conquered realm, all the annexed provinces of the Roman Empire, And we have a lot of corroborated records of many types of these senses being taken between 8 B.C. out to about 300 A.D. But the timing and purpose of this particular census was not only to document the registration of the inhabitants in all the provinces in their own city, in their own hometowns where they were born, but it was also their means to collect a tax. And in many cases, not for the Jewish night provinces to register men for the military. And this wasn't like in our modern day census where they come knocking door to door, meet and greet you and asking questions. This this was a very unpleasant requirement imposed on the nation of Israel. And this is an alien intrusion and an unwelcome demand on their affairs and lives of the Jews. And it's a very stark reminder of the allegiance now being required of Israel, for they were in a very dark time and a very low ebb as a conquered people. The line of David had been ended for over 400 years at this point, and Israel was at the mercy of this pagan power. It's ironic that at this particular time, the father chooses to send forth his son into the world where his chosen people are at their greatest weakness. And Luke continues now to, to a lower level of authority to carry out this census within the empire and, and the governing structure. 
And this too has been established by God the Father. And Luke identifies Quirinius, who was at the time of this decree the governor over Syria. And Syria included the province, which is now province of Palestine, the Jewish nation, Judea, Galilee, Bethlehem, and the city of Jerusalem. And Quirinius, too, was a strategic overseer, commander of the armies, and he controlled foreign policy. All of this directed by the powers and central authority of Rome. And it's likely that Quirinius held this position during two periods of time that coincided with the decree and the time of Christ's birth. But it was his responsibility to see that this decree was carried out even in the midst of Jewish resistance and turmoil that impacted the fulfillment of this census for some time, for several years. But however intrusive and demanding this decree was for everyone to return to their hometown, to their own city, in the providence and purpose of God, this was accomplished on a broad scale but also even more specific means to fulfill a prophetic reference identifying not only the government actions taking place, but it identifies the city where Christ was to be born. And we read this, you know this very well in Micah 5.2, where it says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra, too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Can you see here how the Father of of heaven and earth is, is the master conductor over all his creation? And we can see why it's necessary for Luke to include all these, these detailed historical events in this account for the life and the gospel of Christ. These, these historical events can't be glossed over or just seen as some random peripheral details for us to admire and read through as, as current events of the time. Because we've got to stop and realize that even in our day, many people are saying things like, well, it, it doesn't matter what all the historical facts or details, if they're right or not, just, just so the gist of the spirit of the story counts or that We only need to look at what the story points to and just see the spiritual meaning overall. This is completely a completely alien mentality and understanding to the details and the intention in God's Word. Let's go back for a second and just read Luke verses 1 to 4. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. You see, Luke believes it's, it's so vital for us to understand what happened and just how it happened in light of the historical events carried out for the redemptive purposes because 
we've got to remember that Christianity is the only religion in the world where we read and understand and know that God himself intersected, he, he intruded into time and space, into our history, to enter the finite realm and dwell among us, where God sent his Son in the likeness of our sinful flesh, being made in the likeness of men to suffer as we do, and in greater measure, to fulfill the righteousness and bear our sins, to die, be buried, and raised again into heaven as a portent and promise that we will be with him one day. So we must understand and remember that all the encompassing facts and truths of Jesus' birth are paramount to your belief and the promise that Christ brings forth to us, his gospel, both for the forgiveness of our sins which is the fulfillment of his very name, but in the inclusive work of giving that resurrection life to us. And you remember this in Paul's argument, 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then is it not also true that if these scriptures describing the historical events that led up to the glorious incarnation of Christ are not true, then we are all of men most to be pitied? So in those days of this decree sent out by Caesar Augustus, that whatever his intentions were, Caesar Augustus' intentions were, to exercise his power and authority under his rule, we must see and remember that he was an instrument in the hands of God for the working out of God's providence, his will, for this specific period of time, this fullness of time, for the fulfillment of his decree, both in the prophecy and the work of salvation. And it's important for us to remember today, the here and now in these days, that even with the timing of all the events leading up to and including the birth of Christ, that even so our times are in his hands, fully in his hands, not overseen by just a casual glance and momentary intrusion, but fully ruled and overseen by his, in his providence. For us to remember that God is, is never too early and never too late in his dealings with his children. And it's so vital and so necessary, so worth treasuring the reality that for the child of God, we must be able to trust God in the timing of his sovereign will in our lives, no matter how long it takes. We are to wait upon him in faith because he is the Lord of lords. Do we believe that our times are in his hands, that in all matters of our lives, how great or small that he truly is sovereign. This is the first thing Luke is wanting us to see in our first point of God's orchestration in Christ's birth. And now come to our second point in verses 4 and 5. God's providential locus of Christ's birth. Verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, 
in order to register among, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And what I mean by this providential locus is that God not only orchestrated the time of his birth for his son to come enter into the world, but he governed the precise place where his birth to occur. And we see now Luke's examining lens coming into focus a little tighter now and fulfilling this prophecy in, in Micah 5.2. And we want to look briefly at this man, Joseph, who's shrouded in, in obscurity. We don't hear of Joseph in this gospel past chapter 3 or in Matthew beyond chapter 2, but in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 24, we're able to see somewhat into Joseph's character. We see this from his first response to the news that his fiancée was with a child by the Holy Spirit, and he was wanting to not disgrace her, but willingly wanting, willing to quietly send her away, annulling the, the contract of marriage that they had made. However, this was the Lord's plan, so Joseph was instructed by an angel in a dream, not directly confronted, but in a dream to take Mary as his wife. Here was this lowly carpenter, not a man of great wealth and stature, probably not well-educated beyond some simple math skills needed for woodworking, but a simple craftsman who was obedient to the command of God, even a command received in a dream. To me, Joseph is like one of those brothers or sisters in the body who quietly serve behind the scenes. You never hear from them, never in the limelight per se, never seeking attention, but faithfully obeying and serving the Lord and the body. And not only was this about Joseph and his character, but he was also originally from a very obscure town, Bethlehem. It was barely a stopping place for caravans, much less a city of of any prominence or power or economic stature. And even God called it too little in comparison in Judah. And he was living in a small village just as insignificant, which was identified by one of the apostles as a place that nothing ever good came from, Nazareth. And Nazareth was a place that carried a social stigma of unrighteousness and low morals. It was considered to be on the other side of the tracks. It was very likely one of the main reasons Joseph would not leave Mary there in care of anyone in this town during her pregnancy. But God's purpose was to raise up both Joseph and his fiancée Mary in this place to be used in a very extraordinary way, a supernatural way that through the decrees of the highest-ranking official in this oppressive government authority, they would now join the other members in this province, making it their own sojourn southward yet upward in elevation some 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this, too, was not just some casual stroll through flower fields of flowers and a pleasant forest. It was very difficult terrain. And Mary was probably in her third trimester and riding on a donkey on top of this. 
a lot more challenging and sanctifying than jumping in an SUV and heading down Highway 6 to Jerusalem. But consider Mary for a moment as well. She's a very young woman, likely a teenager, but still a woman after God's own heart. We read also in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, in, in verses 46 to 55, what is called the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, full of Old Testament scriptures, rejoicing and praising God, revealing her own heart's desire to pursue God and to pursue holiness. She was a vessel fit to be used by her master and available to God in submission also to her fiancé to carry out the plans of God's redemptive history that, that hinged on these two young people. And it was, as I said, it was a significant trial to make this trek, even if you were not pregnant. But it shows us both that Joseph and Mary suffered well. They suffered hardship and trials and testing in the midst of God's providential work and his purposes in carrying out his plan to fulfill where his son would be born. And even though we don't read the details of the journey, we can be confident of the father's loving care along the way from their homes in Nazareth, away from their families, away from friends, away from their business, all the way up to their birthplaces, their hometowns in Bethlehem. And in the unfolding of his plan in their lives, comes the child Jesus. But the father was faithful in bringing all three of them safely to the city of David. And what Luke is, is really reminding here, if we look deeper into this, is that in each and every circumstance of our own lives, it must be, it has to be our faith and trust in God and his providence and a desire for his glory that we will persevere when we rest entirely and truly on the reality that he oversees all external circumstances as a means of strengthening our faith and our dependence upon him. We've looked at God's orchestration of his plan through the rulers of this empire, through the local governors, how God has displayed his providence now in leading and caring Joseph and, for Joseph and Mary right down to this very particular city and the place of our Lord's birth. And we come to our final observation, the humility and the redemption in Christ's birth in verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There's not just a simplicity in the words that Luke uses here to describe what is the most profound event in the history of mankind, but we can hear clear echoes in this direct, embellished account, the humility that surrounded this entire event especially in the second person of the Trinity taking on the likeness of our sinful flesh and being born, being a baby. Joseph and Mary had been in Bethlehem for a period of time. We don't know exactly the number of days. 
We don't know if they've completed the registration for the census. But considering the very likelihood that they were not wealthy, both being from remote villages, they knew nothing of, of exorbitant commerce. They had traveled for several days and with expenses to get back to the city of David. And now we read in verse 7 that because of the movement, the influx of the people in and through Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. And in the Greek, this word for the inn actually means a, a guest room or possibly even just a simple shelter, even a lean-to. There was no room for them, for Joseph or Mary or the unborn child, but we can see in this that for any child of God, there's no room for the wor- in the world for us, but that we too must go outside the camp to bear his reproach. So in their time of need and at the completion of her days, They make full use of the shelter where the animals were kept to give birth to the Son of God. These were truly humble surroundings. Surroundings that would cause any of us to cringe, just to consider to go into a smelly barn full of donkeys, goats, sheep, oxen, much less to have to sleep. And we would have an even greater fear to think of giving birth here, especially to one who has been called and identified as the Son of the Most High. Yet this is God's plan in full and timely execution for his purpose. And do we see in in this how he is so willing to understand our utter weakness our deepest fears, our greatest loneliness, the pressures beyond our comprehension. This is truly part of the marvel and the mystery of this message of the Incarnation. For the Son of God to be brought into this world by a virgin girl that we might come to know a Savior who understands and is willing to suffer for us and die for us to save us from our sins. Look at this. Son of the Most High God, given in birth. Not ushered in with grand announcement and proclamation to the world, but the infinitely glorious, now brought into the world as a baby, only to be announced to an outcast group of humble shepherds. King of kings to be ever upon the throne of David, laid in a feeding trough. Not one like Caesar Augustus resting in fine silk and linens upon a bed of carved ivory and gold, but in a hewn stone where the lowest of animals feed. We see here nothing less than God's humbling himself through the humbling of his beloved son for our sake. So that when he calls you and I to humility, to put on humility, to walk in the most greatest and practical of all graces, he's not calling us to something that he himself is not and has not fully lived in. He's not calling us to something that is inconsistent with the glory of his own character. 
No, his glory is revealed all the more through his humility in this birth and throughout his obedient life. We ought to be moved by this humility. The utter fullness of his humility, the fullness of his meekness, the fullness of his desire to come, to seek, and to save that which was lost. May it fill us with the desire to emulate him, to follow him in the same manner in every aspect of our life. But there's more. We're not just beholding the amazing timing by the Father to orchestrate these these very specific details in preparing and leading to this time and place of Jesus' birth. But we can see in this, from his ever-so-humble birth, a glimpse into the fulfillment of his redemption. At the outset of his incarnation, the God-man, as a baby, is wrapped in cloths. These are binding cloths, not elaborate fabrics, but strips of cloth that were used at that time to bind up and restrict the newborn baby to keep his limbs straight and secure. They believed that this helped the child develop properly. However, where else do we see Christ wrapped in cloths? wrapped in a linen cloth. Luke twenty three fifty three. Luke gives the account when Christ is taken off the cross after his wrath-bearing work is finished, atonement is accomplished, that he is now wrapped again in cloth for burial. We read back in verse 7, chapter 2, that the firstborn son of Mary was then laid in a manger, which is actually a feeding trough. It is a hewn stone. It is porous. It absorbed the hay, the grains, the saliva, the leftover food that all the animals ate. It was disgusting. It was a place of horrible smell. But Christ was laid in this food trough as his bed. Back again, Luke twenty-three fifty-three. We read that Christ was laid again in a hewn rock, a tomb, where his body would remain only for three days, yet he would not see decay. Glory to God, for he would rise again at the satisfaction of the Father. But what we see in this is that Christ came. He came by physical birth into this world in order that he might die, in order to fulfill His name declared by the angels. Jesus, for he will save him, save his people from their sins. Is not this method of redemption amazing and awe-inspiring to you? Does it fill your hearts with wonder at the mercy of God to send his very son in the lowest of humility and circumstances and conditions to die for you? to understand with our minds and contemplate within our hearts that from his lowest state, the utter fullness of Christ's humiliation in his birth, in his life of perfect and fulfilling obedience to the Father, he is then lifted up and nailed to a cross to bear his Father's wrath for our sins in crushing death. And yet he rises again to purchase for us a title to glory, his glory, his eternal life, in knowing him and the Father. 
How can we not bow in worship and thanksgiving and continue to marvel at the mystery of this righteous redemption that was wrought in weakness through none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God? For there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved. Man could not comprehend such a great salvation or even conspire a better means to achieve such a salvation. It has never happened, and it never will happen. No one but God himself could orchestrate this and execute this perfectly for his glory and our good. Praise the Lord, it succeeded. And this is both the who and why we celebrate in this Christmas season. Let's pray.